I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. You're listening to Muses and Stuff. This is the podcast that's all about the dolls. They were the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, and the muses who played such a huge role in rock and roll history by simply being themselves. They were sweet, sexy, brave, and powerful. They went after what and who they wanted, and they made no apologies. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Lynx. Hello. How's it going? Great. It's a beautiful day. The sun yeah, the is sun shining. Came out. It's nice. It's not been so sunny lately. So we're together. Yes. Yeah. How was your uh, weekend? It was good. Good weekend. Good week. Um, I went to the Casby Awards mm-hmm. on Wednesday night. It was Tuesday or Wednesday night of last week, and that was at the Phoenix um, in Toronto. So I hadn't been to the Phoenix in a while since we were there for Canadian Music Week. Oh, yeah. And the reason why we went. So the CASB stands for Canadian Awards. It's so funny because I've been to them before many years. Selected well. by you. <laughs> Something yeah, that's, like yeah, that's that. We'll go with that. Something like that. <laughs> so um, the bands that were up for awards were like July Talk and Matt Mays and whatever. And I got um, three July Talk shows coming up. Oh, really? Yeah, sold out at Massey. Well, they're getting yeah, they're getting big here yeah. in Canada land. Um, so we went because I went with uh, my friend Lindsay B because we're friends with the uh, Matt Mays and the guys in that band. 
And um, so it's always nice to see them because they travel from the East Coast. Matt lives here now, but all the rest of them come in from, from yeah, come from Nova Scotia. And one of my best friends in the whole world is in that band. So we just got to have like a modern groupie moment where we were at the Phoenix and we were sitting in the dressing room. And it was funny because the door was a little bit ajar. So there was a couple of girls that walked by and they peeked in and they were like, what band is this? <laughs> they were like, do you mind if we come in and sit for a little while? So they were like, sure. So like they invited them in. It was sweet. They were really nice. We just like sat around chatting. And um, then the Sheepdogs closed the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end, and so everybody was still, because after, and, and Matt and the guys played before that. And usually when they're done playing a show, they just like, like to chill out for a few minutes. So I went to go, I wanted to watch the Sheepdogs. So I was standing there watching them. And then their last song, they did a Tom Petty cover. And they were like, where are the guys in Matt Mays? So I knew where they were. (laughs) So I was, I like booked it um to their dressing room yeah and then as i was walking in matt was walking out and i looked at him and i was like you better get on stage for that tom petty cover <laughs> and so they jumped on which song was it um you don't know how it feels oh, cool. and good. then i saw sash jordan like the next yeah. night i was so uh, bummed i couldn't go to that yeah at market hall in peterborough mm-hmm. and uh she closed the show by doing Stop dragging my heart around. Oh, yeah, her so band was good. really, really good. And her voice doing that, that must have been incredible. And you know what? Remember we asked her, like, are you going to write your own story? Mm-hmm. Well, this show, before she introduced every song, she talked about every song every and how song. it got made. And it was almost like this could be in a book. So she might be getting there. I don't know. Cool. She might have taken our, you know, <laughs> our recommendation and she might be going with it. That would be awesome. Sass is the best. Yeah, it was super fun. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, I think we've both been listening to some podcasts lately. Yeah. So we've been listening to everything that these people from the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. It's a network of rock and roll podcasts. Yes. They're really awesome. And Peter and Christian run it. Yeah. 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 And the reason why we all hooked up was because... When our Elvis episode was released for the CBC's podcast playlist, they also had an episode up and then they listened to our episode and we've just all been kind of buds and talking ever since. So if you listen to their last rock talk, they um, have they they talk rock about the muses here. (laughs) So they have some really nice things to say about us and we have great things to say about them. Yeah, it's so great. Uh, Just the community everyone is so supportive of each other and there's so much like good information out there if you're a rock and roll lover gotta check them out yeah so they've got the rock and roll archaeology project deeper digs and rock vinyl snob and rock talk among others Others. yeah yeah Yeah. so definitely check them out and uh, hopefully we can have some of these guys on to talk to them and and vice versa yeah and it's nice because it's nice to uh, touch base with people who aren't in Canada as well so they're for sure Sure. They're in the U.S. Yes. Somewhere. Maybe somewhere warm. Probably. Yeah. Wishing we were there right now. <laughs> but uh, our episode's going to take us to L.A. Yes. Let's go to L.A. Like, bring me there, yes. links. <laughs> so. Who are we doing today? Today is all about Pamela Corson or Pamela Morrison, however you know her. Um, she was soulmate to Jim Morrison of The Doors. And they have a very... Uh, interesting love story, beautiful, tragic, uh, crazy, 
It's it's a good one. And I don't know it. Yay. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited. So for the base of this, I read a book called Angels Dance and Angels Die, The Tragic Romance of Pamela and Jim Morrison by Patricia Butler. I've read many other books on Jim Morrison or The Doors, and they all mention her. So I knew a lot about her before. But this was the first book, I believe, that kind of focused on strictly like their relationship. And I found that a lot of the information I knew before was not completely factual or uh, just distorted in some way or st- or downright like completely untrue. Hmm. So, and yeah, we it, see that that happens with our ladies, that that does happen. Exactly. So. And so, yeah, if you think you know th- her story, you probably don't. So I'm going to give it to you the way Patricia Butler, who interviewed tons of uh, Pamela's friends and family and uh, Jim's friends and family. So uh, I think this is probably as close to the truth, if you want to put it that way, as you're going to get. Fantastic. I'm settling in. Yes. So just for your knowledge, Jim Morrison was born on December 8, 1943. And a couple years later, on December 22nd, 1946, is when Pamela was born. Now, she was born in a place called Weed in California. Um, I think she grew up in Orange County, though, in just a place called Orange. (laughs) (laughs) So her dad, like Jim's dad, was in the Navy, but he later became a school teacher and later then a principal. So, uh, yeah, I don't think he was in the Navy after Pamela was born. She has an older sister named Judy. Um, Jim and Pam were very similar in their youth. Uh, Jim was a little more outgoing and did have, you know, some close friends. But for the most part, they were always both considered the odd ones on the playground. They both had that kind of like loner, weirdo kind of feel. Uh, But it seems that both of them kind of uh, loved that. It wasn't like they were outcasts and made that way. That was just who they were Mm -hmm. and they were fine with it. Um, For example, Pamela would participate in the brownies or in gym class, but she would refuse to wear the uniform. (laughs) She always had excuses as to like why she wasn't wearing it and stuff. So like, yeah, she was there, but she always kind of made herself a little bit of an outsider. And as as she got... Rebel heart. Yes. As she got older, uh, she would develop apparently a very unique style that wasn't really seen in Orange County in those days, which which also made her stand out. But on the flip side of that, Pamela was extremely thin and suffered from anorexia. And one of her classmates commented on how it looked as though she were trying to make herself disappear. Oh, so yeah. That's sad. Yes. Um, classmates say that Pamela and Judy never seemed to be supervised, that their parents were the only ones kind of in that community that really didn't participate in the goings on and, you know, school events. And it just seemed like they were left to their own devices type of thing. By high school, Pamela had no real close friendships and she was constantly getting in trouble for lack of participation and cutting class, which sounds a lot like me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another thing she shared in common with Jim is they had the high intelligence. It's just that they didn't care to focus it on school. Yep. That that's a thing. Yeah. So what was going on at home with her? Like her. Well, no one seems to really know 
it it's interesting too because it's mentioned you know her dad became a principal right and here he is with his daughter who just cuts class and gets suspended and doesn't care and everyone was like you how can you not even rein in your own daughter like what's going on there um because it, it seemed to you know the people around it was like it that they just didn't care okay but you know i'm sure they cared it's just some weird dynamic there was going on um, she did make a close friend in high school named Annette, and she describes Pamela as incredibly quick-witted, intelligent, observant, cynical, and she oozed disdain. In <laughs> <laughs> uh, her junior year, Pamela showed up all in black, her red hair now black as well. She was Orange County's first beatnik, apparently. I was going to say goth? <laughs> yeah. We're uh, pre-goth. We're okay. beatniks. Um, she also confided in Annette that she'd been going to a club called Rendezvous, Rendezvous in Newport Beach, which was about 15 miles south of Orange County. So apparently she was hitchhiking there and seeing bands and drinking. And this was just like not something kids in Orange County did at the time. So this was like serious rebellion. Um, and yeah, eventually she was kicked out of school, which suited Pam fine. And again, yeah, it's like your dad's a principal. What's what's happening? But that's what was happening. Uh, by the time she got out of high school, her sister Judy had already left and moved to L.A. Um, again, I think that her sister, they had like a intense relationship, too. They would fight a lot and people, they caused people to wonder what was happening. Mm-hmm. And we don't know because Pamela never had the chance to write her own exactly, story. Exactly. So it's like putting together pieces of a puzzle with her. For sure. Okay. So, yeah, she decided to follow her sister, though, out to L.A. And, yeah, apparently her parents weren't exactly pleased by it, but they didn't ever try to stop her either. And they did support her financially. So, understanding there. There was an understanding. So Jim came to L.A. in 1964 to go to UCLA for film. Uh, it was there he met Ray Manzarek, who plays, like, keys in the doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wasn't until they left school that Jim decided to focus on music. He says he heard, like, the whole band in his head and would just write down what he heard. And after a chance meeting with Ray in Venice Beach, he shared some of the lyrics, and Ray was like, wow, this is... We, there's something here, and they decided to pursue that. Um, I believe Pam arrived around a year or so after Jim did, around then. Um, she was taking part in art classes at the Los Angeles City College. Um, there are conflicting stories about exactly how Jim and Pamela met. Some say they had seen each other at some parties at UCLA, but maybe he didn't really have the courage to talk to her yet or but Raymond Zarek um he says that he recalls seeing Pam for the first time at a club called London Fog on Sunset Strip and he says it was actually the Doors drummer John Desmore Densmore sorry who spotted her and kind of put the moves on her but and I quote uh within about one uh, within about a one or two week period Jim and Pam looked at each other in the eyes and realized it wasn't going to be John at all. It was going to be Jim and Pam. Mm -hmm. So I just want to kind of cut in here. I 
rewatched Oliver Stone's movie of the doors and he has them meeting by um him like seeing her walking on Venice Beach or something and he like literally stalks her to her mm. house and like jumps through like a window or something it was so bizarre is that the Val Kilmer one yes so and Meg Ryan plays Pamela now apparently this movie everyone who knows Jim and Pam are like I don't even know who those people were but like they were not Jim and Pam so that yeah don't Mm -hmm. maybe watch it and have fun with it but like that's not based in reality at all okay unfortunately I think actually Oliver Stone a friend of theirs said like this isn't Jim like Jim is sweet and loving and caring and and Oliver Stone said something like that Jim is boring and I don't want to make a boring movie Mm. so yeah that gives you an idea anyway uh, however it happened it's now about 1966 that they became a couple and they fell hard and fast Uh, Ray recalls Jim being in the best shape of his life physically mentally as they began to work on their band as well um, the book mentions at this point that Jim was about 5'11 and about 145 pounds and Pam was only 5'4 and about 94 pounds. Ooh. Yeah. Apparently the whole time they were together, she she fluctuated from like 94 to 98. Okay. So, yes. She still has, still has some of those issues. Um, people... Uh, describe her as having a very sweet angelic feeling about her and having this fairy tale like quality uh everyone thought jim and pam were idyllic uh except pam's sister apparently she was not too thrilled about it but i don't know i don't know why hmm. um so jim found great significance in the fact that pamela was born in weed now it was Weed is close to Mount Shasta, and as we all know, Jim is kind of very into, like, occult and uh, Indian uh, folklore and mythology and all that. And there's the legend of the lizard people. Oh. Yes. And that's about an underground city that's in the shape of a lizard. And I guess the head and the heart are under L.A., and then the tail is in weed okay so jim that kind of joins the two cities and that was like pamela's path from like weed down to la which connected them together and he just he just decided this was like destiny this means we're meant to be together so was he smoking that weed when he was um (laughs) okay i had to do it i had to make the joke (laughs) Somebody had to say it. I know you're all thinking it. <laughs> yes. All right. So Pamela was incredibly supportive of Jim in those early days and for all the days after. Uh, she was with him before the doors took off. I think that was very important to Jim. It wasn't. Um, some people in the past have sort of commented on Pamela being like a gold digger or something like that. And that's 100% not true. Um any little victory from like the first time Jim got paid to sing, it was like a big celebration and she would like make him feel each step of success like was something very special, you know. He really he really loved her for that. 
Um, the band worked really hard and they did see setbacks, but success did come quite quickly for them. When you're hot, you're hot. Yes. Um, Paul Rothschild, who was now working at Electro Records, saw them perform, um, I think at the Whiskey, which was their new spot. They were kicked out of London Fog. Apparently Jim got kicked out of like every club on the strip at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, he decided to take acid. Oh, sorry. I should say Paul Rothschild decided to set them up at Electra and get them in the recording studio. And apparently Jim decided to take acid before recording the end. Mm-hmm. And he later broke every like broke into the studio and blasted the fire extinguisher all over the place. And like clearly even at this point, Jim had some issues with alcohol as well. Um, lucky for all of them, Paul Rothschild realized a star when he saw one and he just decided that this terrible behavior, you know, I'll look, I'll overlook it because there was, you know, dollar signs there. Mm-hmm. Um, now around this time, Jim and Pam moved into the house on Love Street. That's what they called it. Or as Doors fans know it. Um, it was an apartment in a house on Laurel Canyon. Oh, I can't wait to go there. I know. Right? I, uh. I know. I know. So it's on the Rothdale Trail just beside the country store. Uh, as we know, their neighbors at the time included people like Frank Zappa, uh, John and Michelle Phillips, Mama Cass, David Crosby, Gene Clark, Chris Hillman, Jimmy Greenspoon, so many more. That was like Miss the, P. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, speaking of, we also know Jim uh, and Miss P had their encounter at this location. <laughs> it was pretty soon after Jim moved in, I think. Um, Jim was playing their yet unreleased album. Miss P heard it coming through the windows, went to investigate, saw Jim in his uh, leather pants. And I think Miss P says, like, before she knew it, she was doing, like, a one of her little back bends and uh pamela the other pamela came in and was like what what are you doing (laughs) get out of here um so yeah we know jim and pam love each other deeply but we also know jim is a little bit of a scoundrel and was womanizing um and yeah pam accepted it but also didn't like it flaunted in her face i guess so which is perfectly natural um, and yeah, apparently, while she was very sweet and fairy tale like normally, uh, she could hold her own in a fight, which they definitely had more than a few of. Um, I think Morrison was like Jimi Hendrix and many others from that era where, you know, he loved women, but he was only in love with one woman. And uh, they both uh, seemed to sort of get off like fighting with the, their women. And mm. the women got off on it too. Pamela definitely liked. I think she liked that she couldn't control Jim. And, yeah, I do think the fighting sort of was, like, foreplay to them. Interesting. Yes. Um, I am going to be doing Linda Ronstadt mm-hmm. uh, up next. And she spent some time with Jim Morrison. And she does have a little something to say about Jim and Pam. Oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's great. So I'll uh, add that in next week. Yes, please. Um, in January of 67... Their first record was released. Uh, They spent around the next six months promoting and touring. Very quickly, egos started to get in the way. Um, Jim got all the attention, of course, but uh, the Doors were a unit and were very 
equal in bringing forth ideas and a vision. Uh, Light My Fire became their first number one hit. Um, Jim Morrison, again, got all the attention, but he didn't always write the lyrics, which, of course, I think it was Robbie who did. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, he wrote some of them, of course, but a lot of their biggest hits actually weren't by Jim. No way. Yeah. Like Light My Fire, he didn't write the lyrics to that. Okay. So, yeah. Um, and with Jim getting all the attention, there was sort of tension in the band because of that. Um, in August, they began recording their next record, which was aptly named Strange Days. Uh, Jim also was sort of realizing getting everything you ever wanted doesn't necessarily equal happiness. Hey, yo, say that again. Yeah. Uh, he was apparently plagued with insecurities over his talent and went through periods of feeling like a fraud, probably again, because like their biggest hits weren't his lyrics and he's supposed to be the poet and all of that. Um, those around him, uh, talk about how Jim started kind of drinking heavily at this point but he also like didn't drink every day or anything so the problem really was he never really showed signs of being drunk because it didn't alcohol didn't affect his body the same way but all of a sudden he kind of turned into a maniac and get very abusive and terrible it was like poison yep absolutely yeah and yeah i've seen that before you wouldn't know he was drunk until yes things started getting thrown around and everything uh, apparently, Pamela was really the only one who could somewhat, somewhat control him. Uh, he tended to be more quiet and balanced if she was around, but he would also sometimes just go over the edge and Pamela would have none of it. Uh, there's a story uh, Paul Ferreira, the photographer, tells. He says, when Pamela was there, it was like he was with his wife. But boy, when she was gone... We used to get thrown out of places. There was a whole list of places in Hollywood we couldn't go to with Jim. We went one night to the Jupiter, opening night for Blood, Sweat, and Tears, their first gig. We were in this little balcony, and Jim was screaming. When he wasn't drunk, he was a gentleman. He was an angel dude. But he had his threshold, and once he passed it, he was obnoxious. And eventually, he would just pass out, pee his pants, and we would carry him home. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, so the ushers on this particular night ended up throwing Jim out and Pamela refused to leave and insisted Paul stay with her. She said, you know, that we shouldn't pay for Jim's bad behavior. I want to see the band and I want Jim to see like acting like that will end him up all alone. So, Good. yeah. Yeah. Uh, after the show, they found him passed out in a stranger's car. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> um, Pamela once told uh, the Doors manager Bill Siddons who also uh, totally agreed with this statement uh, there are a lot of people who pretended to be close to Jim but I was the only one who had the nerve to stand up to him yeah 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 it's not something new we talk about that often yeah the, surrounded like by yes people that's right yeah um so yeah, we know Jim had a dark side, but apparently Pamela did as well. Friends remember uh, that they like to play these like weird, dangerous games with one another. They love to scare each other and like pop out of dark shadows. They like to uh, wave knives around. 
they would be fighting and one would pick up a knife and that was a normal occurrence. And they liked playing chicken in cars on the swirling canyon roads. They also apparently would drive up to Maholland and roll the car toward the cliff. They just like loved that like adrenaline rush, I guess. Uh-oh. So yeah, there were times that yeah, there were times they fed off each other's crazy. Let's put it that way. Uh, Ray Manzarek says they were the opposite sides of the same coin, the same person as male and as a female. They were perfect for each other. So as far as drugs were concerned, where Jim preferred preferred alcohol and hallucinogenics, he loved acid and things like that. Pam was more like a pot hash downer type of girl. Um, Pam did have some trips with him, acid trips, but they were more like nightmares. Oh. Uh, so she didn't really partake very often until she finally was like, no, I'm not, never doing that again. Um, and yeah, we know they love to fight and they would fight in front of friends or alone or anything could set them off. It was always stupid shit. Mm. Um, Friends remember, you know, for being so tiny, Pamela could really pack a punch and love to throw things around just as much as Jim did. Um, and yeah, because it came out of nowhere, people kind of got the impression it was just a twisted game to them. You know, what was Jim's upbringing like? Um, Do you know offhand? Yeah, he um, his he moved around a lot. He did have friends, but was kind of like a loner. Um, one interesting thing that is brought up in the book, but again, whether this is true or not, no one can say, but his lawyer, who we kind of know has already lied before, which is why this is very questionable. He says that in a conversation with him, Jim once admitted that he was molested as a child and that he told his mother and that she dismissed it or didn't believe him or something. And that sort of um, became a major issue. And we all know Jim from, you know, his music and everything has like a mother, mother issues. Yeah. So that's, that's, I mean, that's a possibility. Something definitely happened there. And uh, at this point he, he did have like a, um, a not so great relationship with his parents. Um, I think um towards the end of his life he was just starting to like reconnect with them so yeah i mean i can't say that's certain but it it is an interesting theory especially knowing you know the way he was like with women too and the alcohol and yeah you wonder it kind of reminds me of the john lennon thing yeah you know whereas it's like he met yoko later and it's almost she saved him out of that whereas like pamela's been there from the beginning she also has these tendencies it kind of sounds like they're just probably going to go down together yeah exactly exactly yeah i think there's definitely something in his childhood whatever it is that i mean it's usually things that happen in your childhood that really affect you for the rest of your life so yeah Jim's alcohol was definitely escalating, but it wasn't a 24-7 issue at this point. So friends and the band didn't really know what to do. Also, I mean, you're you're in your 20s, you know. How do you really talk to your friend about that, you know? Especially in the 60s where alcohol was like, alcoholism was more like an annoyance or Mm -hmm. something as opposed to a disease. Yes. So yeah, Sober Jim was great, creative, productive, uh, but they never really knew which Jim would show up to the studio or to a gig. Uh, His alcohol issues were sort of becoming like the elephant in the room. 
everyone knew it was there and everyone was sort of waiting to see, is this going to get worse? Is this going to go away? Um, Jim definitely sensed band tensions here as well. Apparently their song five to one is about how he felt like it was, you know, five to one against him. Uh, but Jim could also be on his best behavior when he chose to be. Uh, there was a little story about them visiting Pamela's parents in orange and that he wore a suit and tie and had his hair cut a little shorter. And apparently his parents had a cocktail party for it, for both of them. And they were drinking martinis and Jim made a, a scene in front of Pamela's mother where he took the martini and threw, uh, threw it into the sink and was like, I just got to tell you, like, I just hate, I hate oh my alcohol. God. <laughs> Really laying it on yeah. thick there, Jim. Yeah. So as people, or as Jim became more successful, people started noticing a change in Pamela as well, where she was once makeup-free and had that all-American innocence to her. She was now a little more wild and, you know, a little more outrageous. Um, one felt she may have been making a conscious effort to look the part of the rock and roll girlfriend, but I think it could have just easily have been a natural progression of the lifestyle they were living. Sure. I mean, or just like girl wants to wear some eyeliner from time exactly. to time so, to time. Lay off. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, it was obvious, though, that Pamela still had some issues with anorexia. So, yeah, I said she was always around 94 to 98 pounds. Unfortunately, Jim might have had a lot to do with this. I don't think he purposely did but apparently he would constantly brag about how tiny she was and uh yeah she he was like always talking about it with people i think he kind of had that image of her again like the fairy tale and we know he's into like mythical Mm. beings and i think you know her her whole image really played into that and he loved that yeah a little little fairy girl yeah you know i actually the other day googled why are women in the 70s so much thinner Mm. than today yeah and because i was watching i just watched um carrie with sissy spacek and i was watching it with tj and he was like whoa like the the token like bigger girl is like regular body in 2017 i think twiggy had a lot to do with that super thin then but then but then my question was like were they all trying to be thin in the 70s it's interesting because i always thought it was like natural but then the more i start reading about these things like i remember patty boyd mentioning it too like she she was always tiny but it 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 was a mental thing like she made a point to not eat and stuff um Mm. and even jane fonda who you know exercise i read her amazing autobiography and she had anorexia and bulimia that whole time as well yeah and i mean i was i read a couple articles about it and then some things were saying like well because it's the hormones in our food now and it's i mean um, i think that could definitely have something to do with it but i definitely and the uh, I don't all, think it was like the accessibility all, to food anytime anywhere. I don't I don't think it was completely natural that all these women were sticks. Yeah. And maybe some you know okay, again some people are sticks and that's fine but um maybe because that was considered like the most beautiful like the twiggies and the skinny models you know some were natural and then some were making themselves be that way because that's what was projected as beautiful okay um and yeah 
Jim Jim played into that. Even in his song 20th Century Fox, which is written about her, the first lyric is, well, she's fashionably lean. Mm. Right? So, yeah. Uh, Pamela would actually starve herself some days to maintain her super petite size. Uh, Jim, on the other hand, was no longer fashionably lean whatsoever. Uh, The alcohol was really starting to show. His body was getting a little bloated. By little, I mean... Just look at a photo. Um, yeah. And uh, speaking of Jim using Pamela as a muse, this wasn't just a song or two, but a constant in both his lyrics and his poetry. Jim used to carry a notebook with him at all times and would be constantly scribbling in it. And one of Jim's friends named January, he remembers taking a trip to San Francisco with Jim. And along the way, Jim had to stop at every gas station, every store, every place they could to to call Pam (laughs) and yeah they were so close he felt like he needed to share things with her and every time that he would talk to her he would get a new idea and January says I would watch over his shoulder what he was writing in his notebook because after he talked to Pam it would give him inspiration good or bad he'd start writing I could always tell if he'd talk to Pamela oh that's so interesting yeah so Jim and Jim and Pamela were incredibly bonded everyone could see the love and the longing they each had for you know some sort of stability but neither seemed really capable of maintaining it uh, she was one of the few people that he trusted to bear his true self to. And even in their worst moments, she always encouraged his talents and made him feel special. But around this time, their fights were really escalating. Um, I guess no one exactly knows what happened besides them. This is one of those stories where uh, in this book, they talk about a certain fight, and I've read other books that talk about this fight in a completely different way. But in this book, um, apparently Jim refused to leave the apartment. Pamela wanted him gone, and she called the cops. Now, in other books, I've heard that Jim had a knife to her throat, and we do know that they liked playing with knives <laughs> so that that's possible but maybe he didn't the knife is not mentioned in this book so um yeah apparently when the cops came they were completely starstruck when jim opened the door and they were not you know there to help pamela at all basically mm. um and yeah because their fights were escalating at this point jim did something pretty terrible um apparently just going back a little, when it came to cars, they often would leave them in places. They would run out of gas and just leave the car there. Um, there's so many stories of, like, they would just buy a new one. This is, like, the kind Ooh, of money Jim was making dang. right now. So because of their carelessness with cars, both of them uh, racked up a lot of parking tickets and things like that. And Jim would just send them to the doors manager who would pay them off. And I guess Jim had done that for his tickets. And maybe that day Pamela had given him hers to do the same. But when the cops came, Jim had all the parking tickets in his pockets. 
And he looked at Pamela and like smiled at her and he brought all the parking tickets out and handed them to the cops and they arrested her. <gasps> yeah. Oh, Jim. Yeah. Bad boy. So, yeah. They arrested her a few hours later. Of course, Jim must have sobered up and he bailed her out. And that was just another one of their crazy nights. Just another... <laughs> Another night at the old Morrison. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, they were they were escalating. Now, around this time, I think it was like 68, Raymond Zarek and his wife Dorothy were married. Jim and Pamela were best man and bridesmaid or whatever. And I think this kind of encouraged them to to maybe think about marriage as well because on June 26th they picked up a marriage license they did not ever use it but mm. obviously they were at a point in their relationship where this was discussed marriage was discussed um, yeah after Jim passed away Pamela stated one of the main reasons they never married was that doors, the doors management was against it you know that whole no rock star should have the wife Ugh. But some people think that's kind of BS because when would Jim ever do anything that management told him to do? Yep, that's true. And, and I think everybody knew that he was with yeah her at this. It, yeah, point. exactly. Anyways, like they, he never really made it a secret or anything. But they weren't really touring, were they? Like in their short career, like they did tours here and there. Pamela sometimes would go on tour with. Oh, them. she did. Yeah. Okay. Um. But, yeah, the doors, like, burned out pretty quickly. So there was only a few years there where they were really active. Um, one lovely thing. Let's talk about something nice. Okay, uh, good. One lovely thing Jim did for Pam was finance a retail store she wanted to open. So in 1969, she opened a boutique called Themis after the Greek goddess of justice and law, which is <laughs> a little strange, but... Uh, Jim was apparently thrilled to be helping her and loved seeing Pamela have fun. Um, Jim wanted Pam to have everything she wanted. Money, clothes, cars, anything. They were basically throwing their money away. Um, again, another car story. Apparently, Jim bought Pamela a new Porsche. And one night, she drove him and a friend of theirs to an airport. And when they got out, Pamela must have forgotten to say something because she opened her car door and a car was coming and the door just flew off its hinges oh. and all Jim did was gave her a kiss, gave her some money for cab fare and said, just get a new one. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <sighs> and, um, all their friends knew that this, this retail store was like a big money pit, but as long as Pamela was happy, Jim did not give a shit. So it, yeah. only, it lasted two years and yeah, Jim didn't care. Sometimes I wonder about like, you know, cause I live on, Dundas uh, Street and there are these places that you just walk by and you're like how does that place make money even if it's just like a clothing shop or something because rent is so expensive and imagine it must be the same thing so sometimes I wonder like these little boutiques or these things like is it just backed by a whole bunch of money and it's not really like they're not really mm, looking for the income to be able to stay afloat like there always has to be a backer or something I don't know yeah I don't know because I don't have a little boutique on Dundas Street. West. Well, this was definitely one of those money pit, but we're having fun boutiques. <laughs> yeah. 
And yeah, like like Elvis, Jim was apparently very generous, not just to Pam, but others around him as well. Yeah, money money meant nothing to him. So it's because money's not real. Yeah. It's a construct, everybody. <laughs> when you have it. <laughs> <laughs> Pamela would go to Europe and even Africa to stock the stores with exotic, expensive, and unique merchandise. It was much too expensive for the average clientele, which is probably also why it didn't last very long. Um, when Jim asked was asked to participate in a piece on celebrities and their favorite designers in fashion in a magazine called Show, he chose Pamela, and they actually shot the photos in Pamela's shop with some of their friends and you can find a bunch of these photos online and oh, they're cute. gorgeous. Oh, we'll, we'll have to post them for sure. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, other than Miss P, we haven't really discussed Jim's other women of which we know there were many. He seemed to have a roster of women he would go to whenever he had a fight with Pam and it went, you know, longer than one night uh the unfortunate thing seems to be whether he realized what he was doing or not he romantically led all of them on Mm -hmm. there are so many stories of women who were dating him at this point or they thought they sort of were dating all of them thought i'm going to be the one to take him away from pamela and i think he actually did write some of them like poetry and stuff which really yeah that would be very like that would lead me on if you're writing me romantic mm-hmm. letters and stuff. It was more than a sexual relationship for a lot of them. And this included people like um, a journalist named Anne Moore, Judy Huddleston, who wrote a book that I think we might do eventually. And uh, even Nico. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, apparently when Nico dyed her hair red, it was actually because she knew that Jim loved redheads because of Pamela. No. Yeah. So, yeah, it was pretty cruel and many women were hurt. Again, I don't know if Jim did it on purpose, but Pamela knew of his affairs and though she wasn't exactly happy about it, uh, she seems to know what he knew, which was this is true love and it's us no matter what. So, what, whatever. Um... But apparently Pamela decided if Jim could have his affairs, she could too, which good for her. So I think, though, for Pamela, it was more like she wanted him to feel bad about it. Like she, she I don't think she necessarily wanted to have affairs, mm-hmm. but she she wanted to Jim to feel the affairs. Mm-hmm. So see how you like it. Yes, exactly. Uh, she had a very light dalliance with John Philip Law, who plays um, the angel Pygar in Barbarella. Oh. So there's a little Anita Pomeroy reference there. Yeah. Um, and she also seduced one of Jim's friends one night when Jim was with another girl. And she also had an affair with Christopher Jones. Now, I'm guessing you don't know who Christopher Jones no, is. No, I don't. He was... A pretty big star in the 60s. My dad, like, loved him. He was sort of billed as the next James Dean. He had some issues of his own. So his career kind of stopped because I think he was dealing with things. So he never sort of became that big star that he really should have been. He was gorgeous. Bummer. He was talented. 
Um, but yeah, she, she went out with him for a while. So when the doors went to Europe to tour in 1968, Pamela went along, but she mostly stayed in London. Uh, and by the time they came back, Pamela had broken up with Jim. So I, I don't know what happened there, but she was like, I don't know if she broke up with him to, uh, she, you know, they were soulmates. So I think this was also like another, well, like try to live without me for a while, you know? Christopher Jones was headed to London to shoot a film called The Looking Glass War, which Anthony Hopkins is also in. And Pamela went with him. She stayed with him for about a month. But Christopher talks about how Pamela found a letter that he had written to his ex-wife. He he used to be married to Susan Strasberg, mm-hmm. daughter of like Lee Strasberg. And they had a daughter who was just born. So Christopher says, like, I, it wasn't a romantic letter or anything, but like, I just had a child. And so I was in contact, but Pamela took it uh, as like a breach of faith, I guess. So apparently he, he talks about Pamela's temper and how she like, he uh, experienced what Jim must have experienced many times with throwing things and punching and fighting. And um, apparently Jim was recording in LA at the time, but he, after a couple weeks was like, I can't live without Pam. So he actually left in the middle of recording to go to London to get Pamela back. Yeah. Yes. All right. So I guess it was a good thing that she had just fought with Christopher Jones because apparently they had, she'd left Christopher and she, but she was still in London. And then when Jim came, they had a bunch of fights and then, forgave each other and went back to LA. They fight, they fight, <laughs> they fight and fight and fight. Fight, 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 fight. <laughs> <laughs> the Jim and Pamela show. Amazing. Yeah, that's exactly it. So Jim came home to discover that his bandmates had made a deal with Buick for a lot of money and he was furious. Uh, his Selling love. out? Yeah. His love and his trust, whatever was left of it at this point, was now just officially dead to him. Apparently, he said, I don't have partners anymore. I have associates. He was really upset. Um, In March of 1969, after another fight with Pamela and tensions with the band running high, Jim put on a show he'd forever be remembered for. So, Mm. yes, they were in Miami. He got drunk. He went on stage. He got into some big tirade. He berated the audience. He goaded them on. Apparently, an audience member threw paint at the band. The rest of the band tried to go off stage. Jim just decided to, like, strip there. Um, A policeman went on the stage. Jim took his hat and, like, threw it into the audience or something. Um somewhat of like a light riot i guess started happening uh, a security guard came and like threw jim uh, off into the audience not realizing like who he's throwing and so the night ended early but a couple days later a warrant for jim's arrest came out and these rumors started spreading that he had exposed himself on stage um now this has been a part of the morrison mythology ever since and is completely false he never took his dick out (laughs) oh (laughs) too bad yeah so the media however really loved this story and 
it circulated all over and the band really found it incredibly difficult to get booked for tours or even promotion after that. Yeah. Um, on November 11th, he pled not guilty. Uh, on the same day, he took a flight. I think they were headed to L.A. to see the Stones play. And the flight got like rerouted to Texas or something because he was drunk again. And apparently he harassed a flight attendant. So I've heard some insane stories about things that he would do to, do women. to women. I know. Spit in their terrible. faces, slap Absolutely. them, stuff yeah. like that. Exactly. So this at this point, like you, you know how bad he is mm-hmm. with like alcoholism and everything. But apparently, he got out of that charge because just by sheer luck, he saw that flight attendant at a bar, um, somewhat later, and he seduced her. <laughs> so I guess he still had the charm too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she dropped the charges, uh, but he was found. Um, guilty on the other charges and was awaiting sentencing and apparently like that the whole process with um the courts and everything it really uh, really affected jim he was like really down and pema wasn't around for the trial or anything but that was because jim didn't want her to be she stayed in la and she was actually dealing with her own issues as well she ended up in hospital being treated for malnutrition again the anorexia um so yeah both of them were like exhausted they began talking about leaving the country they they were kind of done with la they were done with america the media all of that um, on December 12th, 1970s, the Doors performed their last show. Uh, they did have more shows left in that tour, but Jim had had enough. So him and Pam spent the next few months trying to tie up loose ends before deciding to make the move to Paris. Uh, Pamela went a little early to find them a place, and Jim joined her in March of 71. So in no time at all, they both saw signs of improvement. They were happier, healthier. Jim was beginning to lose a little bit of the bloat. Um, and Pamela, for the first time ever, hit 100 pounds. Aww. So, yeah, they were they were building something there. Um, Jim, again, I mentioned he was also finally taking steps to rebuild his relationship with his parents. They were in contact again. And him and Pamela were apparently for the first time talking about having kids and they actually obtained another marriage license in Paris. So then what the hell happened? Yeah, he was riding nonstop. He, they had drunken nights, but apparently instead of like whiskey, he was drinking wine, which was better for him. But yes, we know where this is leading. On July 3rd of 1971, around 830 in the morning, Pamela found Jim uh, deceased in their bathtub now she says during the night pamela woke up because jim was breathing really funny jim had issues with asthma and apparently he'd been having some sort of coughing respiratory issues dur- during this time now he got she woke jim up because she didn't like the way he was breathing jim decided to take a bath around 4 a.m Apparently, he vomited a couple times, um, Pamela in to said to the police, that uh, she, you know, helped clean him up and everything. But there was, like, blood and, like, clots of blood in his vomit. Mm. But after he'd vomited, uh, Jim insisted he was feeling a lot better. He said, just go back to bed. I'll, I'll be done here. 
and she said like his collar was coming back and everything so she thought he was fine she went to sleep and then when she woke up he was still in the bathtub dead um and yeah his head was above water so he didn't drown um pamela also said that uh he had a smile on his face Mm. so i don't know how i feel about that i know i'm Um, creeped out Oh, it gets like little, I, that's not. I got I a little more not, creepy. That's supposed to give you a solace, then <laughs> I don't know if it's working. I got a little. I got a little more creepy. Okay. Um. So yeah, an autopsy was never done. Uh, and, and a French examiner said he must have died from natural causes due to heart failure. Um, he, he possibly brought on by the change of temperature in the bath. I'm guessing it was probably more like he had pneumonia or something like a respiratory thing. And um, since he was coughing and clotting like from his chest. So is there no drugs? No. What? I thought it was like a heroin overdose. I know. I think that's like everyone sort of. Yeah. But again, okay. No autopsy was made. So I mean, who, who really knows, but because all, you know, Pamela and their friends in, France and and everyone who knows Jim said like he always sort of had asthma issues, respiratory issues, and leading up to his death, he was definitely had some, and he refused to go to the doctor. He was one of those guys who just you know I'll get through it. So yeah, it was it was more just a stupid mistake not going to a doctor, getting an infection probably. Um. It took three days to prepare for the funeral. And I guess, I don't know, this is so weird, but I, maybe in Paris at this time, I hope it's not still, they didn't take bodies away. So they had Jim's body at their apartment in July and they would like bring ice and try to just keep him cold. What? Yeah. And apparently like everyone was like, Pamela, like don't. Go, stay there don't go there but she she was like i'm staying with him and she stayed with him the whole three days and would sleep with him <gasps> she she didn't want to leave him oh no apparently she said if it were up to me i'd keep him here forever <clears throat> so i mean it, it's super gross but she she's but obviously so beautiful yeah in, <gasps> if you don't think about it too closely all right um, they managed to keep Jim's death a secret for around four days while arrangements were made, but by the final day, it was sort of like a not-so-secret secret. I think there have been rumors of his death before that, too, so people were like, is it true? Is it not true? Um, Pamela ended up going back to L.A. She stayed with her friends for a while, um, and Jim's friends. She, you know, was grieving. Um, all of them were really quite worried about her, and she kind of, like, lost the will to live at that point, I guess. She really didn't see a life without Jim. She had no idea kind of what to do. Now, I'm going to rewind a little bit here. Apparently, on February 12th of 1969, Jim, without Pamela's knowledge, went to his attorney and drew up a will which made Pamela his sole beneficiary should anything happen to him. Now, he signed it with his friend Paul as witness. Now, this has been the source of some controversy because Max Fink, his lawyer, the one who also claims that 
Jim told him about being molested. Uh, he says he never drew up such a will, but Paul is like, I was there and I signed it. Like, I remember. So now that Jim had passed, Pamela kind of found herself in this lawsuit with his estate that went on for like at least two and a half years, um, which I'm sure made her look like a villain. Um, yes, in the media. exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, and yeah, because things with the doors and management had ended so Pamela, so badly, sorry, I'm reading. And, uh, Pamela always felt they were, they kind of took advantage of Jim. Um, these lawsuits sort of for her became more than just about, you know, getting money that Jim wanted her to have, but about making sure Jim, Jim's intentions were sought, you know, put out there. Like, this is what he wanted. He deserves to get this and that sort of gave her a reason to stick around she she wanted to fight make sure jim got what he wanted so um i think after like two and a half years a settlement was made but even then i think uh so she didn't die immediately after he did and so yeah there's another thing where i just assumed that oh well he died like drugs in paris and she was gone a few days later no so okay interesting so, yeah, we're like two and a half years later now. In 1973, Pamela met a man named Randy Ralston, and he was sort of like Jim. He went to USL, UCLA for film. Um, they shacked up almost immediately. He remembers them having a great time, but he says that he had no idea she was Pamela. Uh, she was Jim's widow. Mm. And um, Pamela would go like one day to the next, um, like her moods, like one day they'd be out having fun and the next she like w- wouldn't leave the house and i get this sounds so bad but he finally was like i can't deal with this i'm kicked her out and it wasn't until he kicked her out that um apparently she called him and was like oh i'm sorry like i've been acting this way um i want to make it up to you let's go to a concert so he went out to a concert with pamela and he said she she definitely wanted me to find out then like who she was because at this concert all the important musical people in LA would come up to her and kind of like honor her and pay their respects and so in LA at this point she's definitely like I guess the most famous widow and mm-hmm. um yeah but her and Randy did remain friends and I think they sort of uh still kind of dated but he knew like no one could ever take jim's place so it was sort of just like a light relationships and uh yeah he also says there are times where she would happily talk about jim and would tell many funny stories and everything so there's an important thing that i haven't discussed in this episode at all yet and that is pamela and heroin now again i've read other books on jim and uh they discuss how Pamela was kind of into heroin basically the entire time they were together, uh, that Jim sometimes took it, but overall wasn't a fan and he didn't like that Pamela took it. Um, I've also seen it stated that it was heroin and not anorexia that played a big role in Pam's malnutrition and hospitalization and things like that. Um, I've also seen it stated that she was heavily into um, using in Paris which, you know, I think also is why people think Jim might have OD. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, this particular book had nothing of that. 
the first time heroin is mentioned is after Jim's death. Um, friends of Pamela that she stayed with for a few weeks right after Jim's death say it was obvious that that whole uh, that she was an addict was not true because she was with them 24 7 and of course they would they would know if she were you know a user especially um, a full-time user so hey I think it's quite possible that Jim and Pamela probably took heroin maybe here and there for fun I mean they took other drugs but you couldn't call either of them an addict for sure and we have to remember this is the 60s and heroin wasn't looked at the same so yeah um so yeah we don't know when Pamela started taking it but we do know that she eventually did um on April 25th 1974 is when Pamela died from an overdose she was 27 just like Jim was Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, because she was three years... Yep. Younger. Yeah. Uh, and both were born in December, so... Um, she had been living with two male friends at the time who gave statements to the police. Um, one said he'd arrived home that day to find Pamela and her friend Diane in a drunken state. Um, apparently, Pamela asked him if he would get her some heroin. He He said no, he says. And then him and... They all left... And about two hours later, they came back and decided to make some dinner. And Pamela was on the couch. They thought asleep, uh, you know, um, sleeping off the alcohol. Yeah. So they made dinner. They went to wake up Pamela to eat. And that's when they realized she was unresponsive. They called for help. She was pronounced dead on the scene. Um, one of the men told the police that Pamela had been using heroin for about a year. Wow. Um, it was intended that Pamela's ashes be buried with Jim on her death certificate. Says I like, that's what her dad put. But eight months later, they were put instead at the Fairhaven Memorial in uh, Santa Ana, California. So no one really knows why that happened either. Um, Diane, the friend that she was with, later told Randy that she was certain Pamela had decided to die. That when she left her that day, Pamela apparently said, it's time for me to go be with Jim now. Um, And that she wanted to die at 27 just like Jim had. But apparently Diane also said later on, like, that might not have been entirely true. But apparently Pamela did kind of make statements about... She definitely talked about suicide a lot after yeah. Jim's death. And, you know, I just want to be with Jim and, like, things like that. So um, I think it might have been sort of one of those things where maybe she started using heroin more sort of just knowing that the, the, the possibility that I don't have to decide to die, but this might, like, happen yeah. was there. An autopsy was actually done on Pamela. Uh, it was noted that she was in perfect health. She was 115 pounds when she died. Uh, she showed none of the usual signs that would be there of a regular drug user. So, yeah, the the coroner said, like, this isn't the body of a heroin addict. So I don't think she was, like, a deep addict. And so many of the doors in Jim Morrison books really paint her as, like, a full-blown junkie. Okay. So, yeah, I wanted to kind of make that clear, like, that 
didn't seem to be the case at all. Uh, Raymond Zarek played the organ at her funeral, and he says, it's a tragedy that Pam died, but Pamela and Jim are going to go down in the history books as great lovers, and people are going to be writing plays about them. It's Romeo and Juliet, it's Heloise and Abelard, it's Jim and Pam. Oh. Yeah. So that's their story. That's the story of Jim and Pam. Yeah. I learned so much. Yeah. Thanks, Lynx. You're welcome. Thanks for that. And yeah, it seems to be, like I said, a lot of different information coming in from different places. Mm-hmm. But um, it's interesting. I feel like I have a clearer picture of yeah. Pamela. So now. many rock stars, especially from this era, and especially the ones who pass away, like the mythologies that get built up around them. You know, you never really know what to believe. Mm-hmm. It's and it's it is, I think, important to just not read one book and decide that's the truth, mm-hmm. you know. But um, yeah, I'm glad uh, Patricia Butler wrote this book and gave their story um, a better picture. Yeah. Yeah. And now we've got another one for listeners. Yes. Um, thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm excited for Linda Ronstadt next week. Me too. We've got a lot of things coming up. So Indie Week is starting tomorrow. So we're going to be going to some shows and talking to some bands. And actually another thing that if you want to uh, check out um, from us is that we're going to be back at Se- at Sex City, the radio show. Mm-hmm. So if you guys recall, a few months ago we were at Sex City. Um, it's the CIUT 89.5 FM, and Sex City is smart, engaging, smutty, and scintillating radio brought to you by a group of sexual educators, activists, and culture makers. So they're having like a best of of the year, and they've invited um, everybody back that they, I guess, really enjoyed having on. We had and so much fun. We did. So if you want to tune into that, it's like 11 p.m. or 11.30 p.m., um, I know I think we're on at 11.30. Cool. So if uh, anybody wants to check that out. What day is that? That's a Tuesday. Great. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We'll post about it. Yeah, we will definitely (laughs) remind everybody about it. So thank you so much for listening. Again, uh, you can find us online on Facebook at Muses and Stuff Podcast. Same thing with Instagram, Twitter at Shanti and Links. And then on our website, uh, just put Muses and Stuff into Google and we pop right up. Perfect. Okay. See you later, everybody. See ya. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.